0: Hello, and welcome to the RP HealthCast by Rooney Partners. I'm your host, Jeffrey Friedman. So there's an old saying, and it goes, the more you learn, the less you know. That may sound paradoxical, but unfortunately, it's part of the issue we're having with really understanding the coronavirus. You see, each day brings about new findings. That's great, but these new findings are raising new questions. You know, for example, we're finding out that the disease is not just a respiratory illness, but it's causing a lot of other issues like stroke and brain damage as well. So to break this down and to talk about some of the other neurological issues caused by COVID-19, we have with us Melinda Wenner-Moyer. is a science writer and she's a visiting scholar at NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Melinda writes a column for Slate and she's a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine. She also writes for the New York Times, for Mother Jones, and a number of other women's magazines. Melinda, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay, so before we discuss your recent New York Times op-ed piece, I first wanna set the stage and introduce you to our listeners. In 2006, you earned a master's of arts in science, health, and environmental reporting from my alma mater, New York University. And since then, you've been the recipient of numerous awards and citations for your science and healthcare reporting. And you even received a fellowship from the Alicia Patterson Foundation for Journalism. Did you always wanna be a science and healthcare journalist? And can you tell us a little bit about the fellowship?
1: Sure. So- no, I think I uh, had a very roundabout way of becoming a science journalist. Um, so, I mean, I, I've always loved to write, but I never really knew what to do with that. And I studied—I actually studied music, um, piano performance, and music composition in college, and uh, and molecular biology. Because <laughs> uh, they <laughs> go together. <right. laughs> yeah, it was—it uh, was a busy. I was a busy college student. Um, and really didn't know what I was doing when I graduated from college and ended up working in biotech for a few years in the UK in marketing. And I realized that I was doing some writing for the marketing literature for this company. And it kind of reinvigorated my love of writing. And I realized, gosh, you know, I love science. I love writing. I'd kind of given up the music stuff at that point. And I thought, I wonder if there's a way to marry these two things and, you know, write about science. And I was reading a lot of New Scientist magazine at the time. And that it just kind of dawned on me one day, maybe I could be a science journalist. And that's when I applied to NYU and and moved to New York and and did that program. And I'm so happy in my job, I love my job. And the fellowship that I got um, that you mentioned, the Alicia Patterson Foundation, Fellowship was also just wonderful. So, this foundation um, is named in honor of Alicia Patterson, who was the editor and publisher of Newsday for more than 22 years. And she, um, this uh, fellowship essentially is awarded to a handful of of journalists around the country, um, uh, and every year. And I decided to to apply, and and I wanted to do a fellowship on vaccines. I've always been really attracted to controversial and complicated scientific topics. So this seemed like a natural choice for me. And it was amazing. So with the money from the foundation, I went to West Africa to report a piece um, and just learned a ton. So it was amazing.
0: Wow. That is incredibly interesting. And I want to get into the vaccines and talk more about that. And we'll do that in a little bit. But on June 29th, the New York Times published an op-ed piece under your byline it was entitled can covid damage the brain right so it's interesting so we always talk about it as a respiratory illness so i'd like to walk through some of the different cases and patients you wrote about regarding these brain issues and one case in particular you could probably start with was the case of chelsea alienar and what was her experience
1: so chelsea is 37 years old and she lives in oregon She was previously just a very healthy young woman. And on March 9th, she got essentially the worst headache of her life. And she told me she gets migraines. She's had a lot of headaches, but this was a headache like no other. And she didn't know what it was. Um, She did suspect, you know, maybe this is COVID. Uh, You know, maybe it's just a, a weird symptom of COVID. And she tried to get a test, but back then, As you may remember, it was very hard to get COVID tests. So she wasn't able to get a test until more than a month later. And when she did, it came back positive. Um, But throughout her COVID experience, which is still ongoing, she's still not well. She's had dizziness, um, lightheadedness, blurry vision. She falls down sometimes. Um, She's confused and forgetful. She says it kind of feels like she has early dementia. Um, and she's also lost her sense of taste and smell, which is something we've heard about with some coronavirus patients. She said she lost almost 30 pounds over the course of 45 days because she thinks wow. because she just didn't want to eat. And um, she said numbness in her fingertips and in her toes. And she says she has gone deaf in her left ear for the last month. So it's just a crazy constellation of terrible debilitating symptoms, a lot of which seem to affect her nervous system.
0: That's that's a crazy story, and it's awful. Um, you wrote the op-ed, and actually, I quoted it earlier. You know, the more we learn about the coronavirus, the more we realize it's not just a respiratory infection, right? So, I'd like for you to elaborate a little bit on that thought and describe what you found as the evolution of reported medical conditions associated with the virus.
1: Yeah, sure. So there's now a lot of evidence that the coronavirus, you know, even though it infects the lungs first, it's really not a respiratory disease or not just a respiratory disease, at least. Most people who are developing really serious symptoms and who are dying are not dying from pneumonia or other respiratory complications. Um, And this is in part because it's largely been found actually to be a blood vessel disease, a vascular disease. So the cellular receptor that the virus uses to get into cells, this receptor is found on endothelial cells, which line the blood vessels. And this means that the virus can infect cells in many different organs and systems that are rich with blood vessels. So kidneys, liver, the circulatory system, and the nervous system. And so it can and it can directly infect cells in these Different systems, but also indirectly affect them through the kind of widespread inflammation that then harms parts of the body, even if they're not sort of directly infected with the virus. So, this all makes sense considering that the symptoms that people are reporting with the coronavirus aren't just respiratory systems, they're kind of all over the place, as Chelsea's example
0: illustrates. So, it's kind of like inflammation and hypoxia, like all together. <laughs>
1: Yeah. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And and so many organs that are getting harmed in the process. Yeah.
0: So, all right. So as the virus's impact is on the brain, you know, what what have you been hearing from the medical authorities, you know, other people about the neurology nightmare that they're experiencing?
1: Yeah. So right now there are still so many more questions than there are answers about how COVID affects the brain. But again, we can certainly get hints from the symptoms that patients are experiencing Um, So in addition to the ones that that Chelsea has experienced, there's a lot of patients with brain fog, with um, seizures and confusion, and many of these are persisting for a lot longer than the respiratory symptoms are. Um, And there've been studies that have have shown that these kinds of nervous system issues are pretty common. So there was one study um, that, evaluated patients who had been hospitalized for coronavirus in China and found that more than a third of patients had nervous system symptoms, um, which included seizures, even impaired consciousness. And in France, there was a study that found that 84% of uh, COVID patients who had been admitted to the ICU, that they also had neurological problems. And a lot of them continued to have neurological problems after they were discharged. So these all collectively tell us, yes, you know, the nervous system's being affected. Um, and there's also some growing evidence that, that you know, we, we're we starting to understand and piece together how this happens and how the virus is, is doing this. Um, but there's, there's controversy too, so, um, you know, when we think about a virus directly infecting cells in the nervous system, this is one claim that's a little bit controversial. There's some evidence that suggests that the virus can directly infect nerves because nerves also express this receptor I mentioned before. And some researchers say, well, we think that actually the, the virus is traveling along nerves as it moves to different parts of the body. So one piece of evidence are case reports. And there was a case report of a woman in Los Angeles who was found to have the virus in her cerebral spinal fluid. But the reason this is controversial is because there aren't a lot of studies yet showing that the virus can directly get into nerve cells. There's just a few studies here and there, case studies here and there. But that's in part because it's really hard to get direct evidence of viruses inside the nervous system, infecting the nervous system. You can't just do a biopsy of somebody's brain in an outpatient clinic and then send them home, right? So often this evidence comes from Postmortem mortem brain studies, and there aren't a lot of those. Um, and, you know, even if we think the virus does get inside these brain cells, we don't know what it then does. There's really not a lot of information yet. So we can kind of, if researchers are, are speculating based on what we know can happen when viruses infect brain cells, um, that it might affect the function of these brain cells. It might even affect the structure of the brain. But ultimately, you know, we, we don't know. We know there's reason to be concerned. We know we need to be doing more research, but But when it comes to what's actually happening inside the brain, it's really hard to tell.
0: Yeah. So your op-ed piece, you talk a lot about the trauma, uh, you know, as you just mentioned, the brain inflammation and cellular inflammation. But we've also heard a lot in the news about this inflammation leading to cytokine storms, right? So can you explain a little bit about what that is and, and how it affects the brain?
1: Yeah, sure. So separate from this question of whether the virus is, you know, getting inside brain cells and affecting brain cells directly, one thing we are pretty sure of, scientists are pretty sure of right now, is that the virus is leading to a kind of widespread inflammation throughout the body and including the brain. And we know inflammation is very bad for the brain. So when people have systemic, like really serious infections, these infections can kind of talk to the brain and nervous system, communicate with it, and activate immune molecules outside the brain that then travel into the brain. Um, and you know these immune molecules are are helpful in that they're trying to fight off the infection but they are also, they're kind of like a double-edged sword. They're also very harsh and abrasive and they damage a person's own brain cells. So, you know, they're they're meant to be killing just the, the virus that's not supposed to be there, but they're also inevitably damaging and killing some brain cells. So, so we know, you know, even if the virus isn't getting directly into the brain, that the systemic inflammation that happens as a result of the virus is affecting the brain through this inflammation, through these, through these um, immune molecules. And um, in really severe circumstances, this inflammation can lead to a cytokine storm, which we've all heard about. Um, and so cytokines are a class of immune molecules that are important for fighting off infections. There are a bunch of different kinds um, and they are you know, harsh and, and abrasive and can harm uh, somebody's own body in the process of fighting off an infection. So what happens with a cytokine storm is that your body's cytokine production just goes haywire, goes into overdrive and essentially attacks your own body and tissues and organs along with the virus. And your body essentially becomes this kind of collateral damage and it can lead to organ failure, blood pressure drops and um, racing heartbeat. And I guess the other thing that's important to mention A lot of great news here, right? (laughs) The other thing that's important to mention about inflammation is that it also leads to blood clots, which we've heard a lot about with coronavirus. So blood clots um, occur, and this is again, because coronavirus is largely a vascular disease, blood clots occur in as many as 30% of critically ill COVID patients. And these clots can get into the brain and affect how it functions, and they can also lead to strokes and strokes are very bad for the brain because they starve it of oxygen. So all of, there are all these different ways that inflammation itself, you know, regardless of whether the virus is getting into the brain, that this inflammation can affect the brain.
0: Yeah, and you know, the cytokine so, storm aspect is it's it's scary stuff. It, so there was a great quote in your op-ed. It was from uh, Dr. Majid Fatouhi, uh, a neurologist and neuroscientist affiliated with Johns Hopkins. He you know you quoted him as saying it's like the defense system is called to a quiet small riot in one neighborhood and all of a sudden the whole military's ticked off and they don't know what's going on so they just bomb everything now i thought that was a pretty powerful description and and kind of summed it up really well for me to understand that so uh thank you for sharing that um Another health condition that you wrote about that's been triggered by the coronavirus, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, uh, Guillain-Barré syndrome. Uh, Can you talk about the case of Michelle Hart in this instance?
1: Yes. So Michelle is a 41-year-old psychotherapist who lives in Colorado. And on April 25th, she started having really bizarre symptoms, Um, high blood pressure, racing heart pins and needles, shooting nerve pain, and like a burning sensation in her skin, um, along with other weird one uh, brain-related issues like memory loss and brain fog. And when she first, she first went to the ER, she was kind of dismissed by doctors. She thought, you know, maybe this is coronavirus. And they said, no, this doesn't sound like the coronavirus. You know, go home, get some rest. Um, didn't give her a COVID test, even though she asked for one, because again, her symptoms were atypical. And as we're learning, a lot of the symptoms are atypical, but back then the doctors really didn't flag it. Um, But she ended up back in urgent care back in the ER and was diagnosed about a week later and had coronavirus. And then very soon after that, she was hospitalized because those um, symptoms of the nerve pain, burning sensations, high blood pressure were getting worse. And she was given a lot of tests and she was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, which I also can't say, (laughs) (laughs) which is an autoimmune disease in which the body basically starts attacking its own nerves. And um, in fact, she was back in the hospital last week. I was in touch with her getting more treatment for this autoimmune disease. So this is thought to have been incited by the coronavirus. In rare cases, there have been COVID patients that have developed these kinds of neurological autoimmune diseases, which, may again be triggered by inflammation kind of going crazy and the body suddenly just starting to attack its own nervous system tissue. It's really scary.
0: So different types of cytokine storms where the body just starts attacking things and irregardless of where the infection is. Right. Interesting. So, all right, to to go back then uh, to where actually where we started with vaccines, you know, and, and what you like to study. You've studied and reported on the anti-vaxxer movement. And I saw a Washington Post poll last week that said 27% of those people surveyed don't intend on getting a coronavirus vaccine when it's available. Now, how do you feel about this? And are you concerned that once we have approved vaccines, that resistance can mount to taking the vaccine? So that would leave a lot of people exposed to the coronavirus, kind of making the vaccine uh, you know, negligible in its effect. You know, what do you think?
1: Yeah, that poll is really terrifying. <laughs> uh, I hope that it doesn't turn out to be 27% of people who reject the vaccine. That would, that would be hugely problematic because, I mean, ideally with a vaccine like this, you want to reach herd immunity so that we minimize the transition of of, sorry, transmission of the virus. So once enough people are immune, it really stops spreading as easily. And one of the reasons it's so important to reach this herd immunity is because there are a lot of people in the country who can't get vaccines because they're immunocompromised, they have you know other um, medical issues that prevent them from, and, and those are very, you know, people who are going to be at very high risk for serious complications with the coronavirus. So ideally, we want to be protecting people who can't, Get a vaccine, right? Um, and the other thing is, I mean, vaccines are amazing, but none of them are 100% effective. And once we get a vaccine for coronavirus, you know, we don't know at this point whether it will be 90% effective at pr- protecting people or 80% or 99 hopefully it's 99%. But, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, have this idea of, well, it doesn't matter if other people don't get vaccinated, because if I get vaccinated and my family gets vaccinated, we'll be fine. We, there's no risk to us of getting the coronavirus. And that's not necessarily true because vaccines aren't 100 percent. So ideally, you want to have you know everybody getting this vaccine. So even though, you know, it may not be a perfect vaccine, it will get to this herd immunity threshold and really just slow down and stop coronavirus transmission.
0: I hope so. And, uh, but I think we're several months away still. So oh, yeah. we, uh, we find out with vaccines. But uh, with that, you know, I'd love to talk further, you know, as we get closer to those vaccines, maybe have you back to talk more about vaccines uh, and the thought about herd uh, immunity. That was great, but thank you so much for your time today. This has been really, really informative.
1: You're welcome, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or future story suggestions, please reach out to us on social media. Thank you, and we hope you enjoyed the RP HealthCast.